When an emergency strikes, Preppy has you covered. Made in California, canvas and leather emergency kits packed with survival food, water, and first aid with optional emergency satellite communication. Go to Preppy.co. That's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Got a lot of movies to talk about this week, and joining us to discuss them, Peter Rayner, critic for the Christian Science Monitor, Claudia Puig, president of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, which given that they're getting close to their voting on their slate means she's probably pulling 20-hour-a-day shifts these days. Mm -hmm. And Charles Solomon, who's a film critic with Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We begin with another animated film that's drawn from a line of toys, Playmobil the Movie, uh, stars the voices of Daniel Radcliffe and Anya Taylor-Joy, Jim Gaffigan as well. It's directed by Lino DeSalvo and written by Blaze Hemingway, Greg Erb, and Jason Oramlin. Charles, what do you think of Playmobil the movie? Well, if, par- if there are parents who feel their children haven't been exposed to enough toy commercials this holiday season, this is the answer and what they've been looking for. The only reason this exists is because the first Lego movie came out, made a bunch of money, presumably attracted a lot of people to Legos. And although that franchise seems to have kind of stalled and overexposed itself, uh, we have the Playmobil toys, who are little figures with no noses and these strange hands that look like wrenches. They don't have fingers. They really, they just sort of open and close like pinchers. Um, The story just rambles and stumbles and bungles away its way along. The um, Marla, the heroine, has to take over raising her for, her brother uh, when their parents are killed, when she's presumably just finishing college, and he's four. And now four years later, he complains she's no fun anymore. You know, this is not like the Lilo and Stitch bond between siblings or even the Frozen bond between siblings. So they get sucked into a Lego world. And I assume if you played Lego a lot when you were a little kid, which I, and I'm sorry, not Lego, Playmobil. Playmobil, yeah. Yeah, which I didn't have when I was a kid. So Mm -hmm. I did not recognize these figures. I have no warm memories of them. And I certainly have no warm memories of the movie that is there, you know, just to trot out toys and sell them. There are pointless songs by people who don't sing very well. And Daniel Radcliffe, who you think wouldn't need the money and would have more pride, is the voice of this sort of James Bond spoof in a branded Porsche just to get in a little more advertising. So it's pretty dismal. (laughs) Playmobil the movie, animated film in wide release. It's rated PG. Uh, The biographical action picture, The Aeronauts, reteams Felicity Jones and Eddie Redmayne. Jones plays pilot Amelia Wren. Redmayne is meteorologist James Glacier. In 1862, they undertook a gas balloon expedition, which put them both in a fight for survival. Wait, not one of my readings suggested a storm. Well, that's what it is. And we're inside a cumulus, which is precisely where we shouldn't be. Don't worry. She's not made of conductive material, so we won't attract lightning. And if we are struck, the gas will explode, so we won't live long enough for me to push up. Uh, Jones and Redmayne were, of course, paired as the stars of The Theory of Everything. The Aeronauts uh, is directed by Tom Harper. Peter, what did you think? 
Well, Larry, you called it an action film. Uh, We looked at each other. Okay. Uh, I mean, I can't resist it. This film never gets off the ground. Um, It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's fun to see the two of them again. I mean, they're wonderful performers. And, you know, I just, obviously they wanted to, as you say, work in another movie. I wish it wasn't this one. Um, uh, James Glacier is is a real guy. He was a sort of pioneering meteorologist. Um, but who did most of his work with another man? It, it, right. I mean, it, it, Amelia Wren Jones is, is sort of a composite, apparently. You know, balloon balloonatist, or whatever you call it. <laughs> that's right. that's easy. Balloonian. Balloonophile. <laughs> that's all, folks. We we'll have to um, look that one up. Yeah, but uh, be that as it may, they find themselves uh, up, up, and away for uh, large portions of this movie. Um, the only thing I can say that's sort of nice about the film is that. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of CGI. You actually do see, uh, you know, the the Earth from from a balloon perspective, and it's kind of pretty. It's nothing you, you can't get re- by looking out the window when you're taking an airplane. But <laughs> you know, I mean, and it, it was originally supposed to be an IMAX, and uh, for reasons uh, I don't understand, it, it's not. Um, I guess they were going because they're the two characters are very polar opposites. He's sort of a you know fidgety. Uh, you know, control freak, and and she's much more expansive and swashbuckling, and I, I mean, it's sort of like a reverse image of of what went on in the African Queen, you know, with with Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn as polar opposites, but you know, it just doesn't work uh, because the action is 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 not interesting. The characters uh, sort of wear out their welcome after a while, despite the the good performers, and the story itself, you know, all right, so we know how it ends. They they. Uh, you know, discover that you can, you can, yeah, yeah, which would be good for LA meteorologists, you know, where, where you actually have to determine weather conditions. We can thank this guy for, uh, for letting us know how to, and if they only had earthquake predictor movies, that would be much better. <laughs> well, that would have to wait a few years. Yes. Claudia, what do you think of the aeronauts? Well, I think his last name is apropos glacier. Um, it's, it's pretty <laughs> glacially paced. It, it, you know, it, one of the other problems I had, with it, in addition to it being dull and and sort of plotting and formulaic sometimes, is that it has this weird flashback, flashback, flash forward structure where you're Endless sometimes in the, yeah, and you're sometimes in the middle, sometimes you're at the beginning, you're at the end, and you're not exactly sure where you are. So it is kind of leaden and dull and also confusing, which is a strange combination. Um, and I think obviously they were trying to, you know, recreate the magic from Theory of Everything with pairing the two of them, and as you say, they're excellent actors. Um, but it just feels like it's it's lacking both the magic pairing. I didn't even feel their uh, sort of chemistry that I felt before, and because they were quite good together. Yes, and they were. Of everything, yeah. I, and they're I, both wonderful nice actors. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to have chemistry in a balloon though when you're you know <laughs> in these confined quarters. Hailstorms, <laughs> you know, it just doesn't. The balloon is pretty, and sometimes there's some, you know, nice moments uh, where it's, you know. But and the idea that they're celebrating science is a good thing. I, we're really trying to damn with fame praise here. I'm going to stop. Yeah, <laughs> science. You're really stretching it there. We're talking about the the aer- aeronauts. You saw two Charles. Yeah, and I liked it less than they did. Okay. Um, there. What really bothers me about this, and trying to give us a modern girl power movie. There were women in 19th century England and America who did important, very adventurous scientific work in anthropology and geography and botany. But neither they nor their stunt doubles came running into some enormous event in a short skirt doing 21st century gymnastics routines. And I think it's 
insulting to the memory of these women who did such important work to reduce the whole idea of this kind of Victorian female scientist to such a twit. These women were known as the globe trotteresses, but they were very much a part of the society they lived in. Mary Kingsley, while doing research in the jungles of Central Africa, put on a formal evening gown every night for dinner, saying, there is no excuse for running around in Africa in something one would be ashamed of at home. And, yeah, but, but she didn't go up in a balloon. No, she didn't. But this woman is, uh, Felicity or Infelicity's character is based on a woman whose husband was killed in a balloon crash. And you really wish he had been in, gone in for more togetherness. The film oh. is The Aeronauts. Ooh. It's rated PG-13. Charles, that's cold. Yeah. Um, it gets cold up there, too. In select theaters, and it'll be streaming on Amazon in a couple of weeks. You can hear an interview with Eddie Redmayne and Felicity Jones that the Frames John Horn conducted with them at the Telluride Film Festival earlier in the year. And you can find a link to that conversation on our Film Week page at K. APCC.org. The French film Portrait of a Lady on Fire is written and directed by uh, Céline Sayama. Uh, Claudia, what do you think? This is, uh, in contrast to everything we've just been saying, this one does take off, and, it, and it's uh, a visual masterpiece. It's a celebration of art that is created by women, inhabited by women. It feels... Um, it's a celebration of, of uh, many things, but it's the cinematography by Claire Mathon is stunning. The acting is wonderful. It's richly gorgeous. It's it's deliberately paced without ever feeling glacial. Um, and it, it just it's it's an emotional love story, but it never becomes sentimental or treacly. Um, and it's mesmerizing. It's it's kind of meditative in its pacing. It's set in uh, the late 1700s, and it's the basic story is that there is um, uh, a woman who comes to paint another young woman for kind of a wedding portrait or engagement portrait. She doesn't want to be married. She's a very reluctant bride to be, and um, so she and she can't let on that she is there to paint her because someone else has come and, and angered the girl who's about to be painted. So they kind of strike up. She's there to be sort of a companion. And in the course of that, they strike up a friendship. They fall in love. And there's a subplot that's also kind of a story of female bonding. And when I say that, it almost sounds like it's uh, PC or something. It's not. It's really beautiful and it's really integral to the story. Um, you can tell this is a movie that's directed and shot by women. And, um, you know, oftentimes when we see like when, uh, lesbian love stories, we see them shot through the male gaze. And this is so not. It's much more complex and it's almost spiritual. It's it's a beautiful film. Peter, what do you think of Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Hey, well, I'm going to take a somewhat dissenting view. Oh, OK. <laughs> um, this is a film I admired more than I liked. Um, I, I think that it's. It's a sort of deliberate art piece. The pacing is very, uh, you know, I mean, I think we're meant to think this is great art because it's slow. It's very chilly uh, in, the, in, in, in the relationships, I think, uh, owe a lot to films like Persona. Or if you want to take it a step further, you know, Laura and Vertigo. I mean, it, 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 the film is not without antecedents. And um, I didn't find enough going on between the women, you know, in terms of, of who they really were. There was a lot of, you know, blank stares and, and, and you know, thawing out and, and all sorts of things that kind of uh, lead you to believe that there's going to be some emotional explosion, which there is. But even then, it just seemed as if it was, uh, you know, just 
there, there was too much artistic restraint for me in this movie. Too much, you know, artfully patterned uh, vistas and tableaus and performances that seemed more posed than acted. But it reflected so, you know, the era in which they were restrained. It was a very repressed era. Yeah, except I, I mean, I like period films where you don't think it's a period film, you know, where you sort of feel like you're in the in the present moment that that even though it's taking place in the 1800s, it's it's taking place in front of you now. And when you have, you know, period films that that sort of are, are deliberately set so that you you feel at least I felt sort of distanced from it um, in an artful way. But nevertheless, I, I wasn't pulled into it emotionally uh, you know, for that reason. Well, it's interesting to me, though, because it seems like you, you Claudia, you felt like you got to know these characters. I felt so immersed. You felt, yeah, yeah. You, you didn't feel like you were held at a distance, but Peter, you felt like you didn't really get to know them. Well, I mean, I, I, I think I got to know what they wanted us to know, but I don't think it was enough. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, some of this is sort of like a Rorschach test, uh, you know, particularly with, with the woman who's being painted, uh, who gives a very good performance, you know, but, but I think it's, it, you, so, you can sort of read into what she's thinking and feeling a lot of the time. Uh, it's, it's, there are suggestions that she knows from the beginning that what the ruse is, that she's going to... Uh, you know, be painted by this woman. She's not just a companion, and she's playing along with it. You know, all of that is 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 interesting. But but I just found the film to be, um, you know, too too hyper hyper staged, too uh, too artfully constructed to to make an emotional okay. connection. I, I like want to give Claudia the last yeah. word. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, no, I know this this is yeah. this is a, a huge success among critics. This film. Well, I feel like that that sort of artful distance is intentional because it's a painterly kind of film. It's about a painting. It's about a portrait. And I feel like what you felt like were the the blank stares were were stares in which are looking at each other in a way that was so much has been communicated under the surface. And it's, you know, the subtlety. There were moments that were fraught, but they're, they have to keep them tamped down. This is a patriarchal repressed culture. So I just, and I know what you're saying about wanting to feel something feels more immediate rather than, uh, you know, a period piece. But I think when you're dealing with something, an era that is so repressed, I think that you you can't have it be more emotional than that. So I've, to me, it worked perfectly. Yeah, I mean, I, just it, the, the patriarchal aspect, <laughs> I think, is, is true. But, but you know, the, the leading autocrat in this movie is her mother, played by Valeria Galino, mm-hmm. the countess. So, you know, I mean, she's, she's as much uh, of a, you know, matriarchal patriarch as anyone else in this when movie. She's gone she for most of the movie. To be yeah, but yeah. That's, <laughs> that's the but thing she is there, gone. You yeah. know it. <laughs> Portrait of a Lady on Fire, the French drama. Uh, it stars Noemi Merlan and Adele Anel. Uh, it's written and directed by Céline Sema. It's rated R. You can see it at the Arclight in Hollywood. Varda by Agnès, a documentary about the acclaimed French filmmaker Agnès Varda. Peter? This is a wonderful movie. This is one of my very favorite movies of the year. Um, uh, Agnès Varda died in, in March uh, at the age of 90. This is her last movie. Uh, and it's uh, officially it's a sort of a master class that she's delivering to an audience in a Paris opera house. And, and uh, so they film her, you know, discussing uh, her life and her career and just everything about her life. And, but it's interspersed with all sorts of clips uh, from her movies um, and also from her art installations, her photography. She started out as a photographer. 
Uh, I mean, it's it's such a companionable movie, uh, such a playful movie. I mean, this is the kind of art that I like. That's that's you know playful, and 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 because it brings out you know more of the of the human condition and the, the comprehension of who this woman is and the vast career that she's had in all of these different art forms, not just movies. Um, even if you've never seen any of her movies, it's sort of like you're meeting an old friend. Um, and, and I don't mean to be soppy about it because she's an artist among, uh, on top of everything else. But it's, it's just such a, a, a marvelous connection that you have with this filmmaker in this film. And she's the star of the biographical documentary Varda by Agnes. It's unrated. Agnes Varda, the director. It's at the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. Back in a minute on Film Week. Preppy wants everyone to be prepared for any situation. By bringing design to the forefront of their emergency kits, they are making earthquake prep less daunting and maybe even a little fun. Made in California, Preppy's attractive canvas and leather bags are designed to be displayed right in your living room or office. If an emergency strikes, your most essential supplies are at arm's length, not stashed somewhere deep in your closet. Though the Preppy line is quite handsome on the outside, the contents they include are incredibly comprehensive, helping you face real emergency situations with confidence. Go to Preppy.co, that's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek for more information. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. Claudia just sharing her whirlwind week as the president of the L.A. Film Critics Association and programming a festival up in Mendocino and then seeing all the movies as all our critics do to prepare for every week's Film Week. In addition to Claudia, Peter Rayner with us and Charles Solomon too. Next up, a documentary I haven't seen yet, but I'm so anxious to watch it. It's part of the Up series of documentaries by British director Michael Apted. He started with this group of uh, young British kids uh, when they were seven years old every seven years since he's done documentaries following their lives we're now at 63 up this all began in 1964 seven years older seven years fatter a bit less hair you look at me at seven and you look at me even now at 63 it's flown by michael it's a lifelong achievement to be part of this program once you get to your 60s it all gets a bit oh how long have we got now <laughs> i certainly don't look forward to it every seven years i suppose as you get a bit older you've got less to lose all these things that i've said over the years yes it has been worth it and you better cut it because otherwise i'm going to cry uh, I'm not a completist, but I've seen a lot of these <laughs> over the years. Yeah. And you get really attached to these, I was going to say kids, yeah, uh, right. 63-year-old <laughs> kids. Yeah. Peter, what do you think of 63 Up? Uh, you know, it's 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 terrific. Uh, it helps if you've seen the other movies, or at least the majority of them, but it's not a requirement because, as in all the other movies, he sort of brings you up to speed by showing you clips from the earlier movies. It gets a little unwieldy because there's so say, many. So many, now it'd be all clips. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's, it's kind of a balancing act but it's kind the, of the salient clips i think hmm? he gets the, the salient clips yeah yeah i mean but still i mean it's 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 sort of uh it's it's a balancing act but um the project began he was a researcher on the granada tv uh 1964 show when they were all seven years old and it's taken from the the jesuit uh uh dictum you know give give me the child until he is seven and i will give you the man so that's what the whole uh, idea of the original one was, but it was very much based also on the class system. You know, you had a lot of rich kids and you had a lot of working class kids and, and you wanted to see how the class system affected them. So lo and behold, you know, he's done 56 years of this 
and uh, and it, it it's it's played out in 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 somewhat but not altogether predictable ways. Um, uh, if you are you know anything like a completist of the series, then you you there are certain people you follow, like particularly the the character Neil, who you know went through all sorts of conniptions, and then he was homeless, and then he was you know working in uh, and he wasn't in, in all the films, was he? Weren't, I think he, he was. Was he? Okay. Yeah, one of them dropped out. The one who dropped out entirely early on actually was a BBC journalist, of course. You know? <laughs> um, and there's one who drops out who dropped out on this one, yeah. and there's one who passed away. But um, but overall, I think it does show you the the trajectory of these lives and 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 how, in some ways, uh, uh, different we you know because some of the rich uh, you know Oxbridge twits turned out rather well and you know very humane and charitable and doing you know all sorts of of you know pro bono work and things like that. It's you know it's very touching and um, I just. The only thing is that they they go at Michael Apted a bit more in this movie than in the others. They sort of criticize him for you know uh, one of the women says you know when we were younger you asked us all these domestic questions of the women but you didn't do anything like that with the men, and and it doesn't. Of it was nineteen sixty four. Well, yeah, I mean, I I would yeah, I mean, and Apted. I think it was when they were teenagers, but Apted, it was the 60s, when he was te- yeah. yeah, and Apted himself is now seventy eight, so. They're sort of talking like maybe this is the last of the series for various reasons, although I'm sure he could go on with it. Um, but uh, the one thing they don't quite deal with is this has been a very popular series in England as well. And so some of these people are sort of minor celebrities just by being And that's the had show. to affect their lives. So it's yes. had to have affected their lives. And, and, and that kind of, you know, Heisenberg thing doesn't quite uh, come through in the film, but, you know, there's a lot to, to love in this movie. Claudia? Well, they do touch on that. Some of them. They do touch yeah, on that. Yeah. And they talk about, you know, they're, I, that's, I found that really interesting how this, you know, sometimes they're very ambivalent about being, a lot of them, about being in the series. I really, you know, I have to admit I'm not a completist and you don't have to be at all. Um, I, I love this. And I, I think there's something about seeing people at 63. I mean, not to sound, um, I don't know. Morbid. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> that's a good word. Um, <laughs> but there's, a, you know, they've softened um, a lot of them, especially some of the, you know, sort of like you said, the 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 sort of uh, highbrow twits, and then even some of the working class. Well, you know, they've all they're all talking about being surrounded by, you know, people they love, whether it's a spouse or children, grandchildren, and that seemed to me. That's what really struck me is that, you know, at that point, you're not talking about the next great adventure you're taking. You're not talking about your ambitions. You're you're sort of enjoying the life that you're in at that moment. You're not. You're elderly, I guess, by some people's standards, but you're not so old that you know. There are a couple people who. One person, I think, whose health was a little dodgy, but you're in a. It's kind of an interesting little period to look at. Um, autumnal, family maybe. is very important. In yeah, autumnal. Family yes. is very important in this movie. Yes. I mean, you can see how ultimately it's sort of coming down to that for a lot of these people. You know, right? And, and where I mean, it might even, not have been before. Right. Yeah. And and there's this one character, you know, Sue, who who's very funny. She's been engaged to this guy for twenty years. <laughs> twenty years. They don't seem to have any intention of getting married, but they in fact are married. Right. And, and they're very happy with it. But she says we're setting a world record. And you know who I love too. Were the two um, kids who were in an orphanage or a charity home, I guess they called it, Paul and Simon. Yeah. It sounds like Paul Simon. Um, and they were interviewed together initially because they were in this charity home. And then one went to Australia and their lives were a little rocky, obviously. They had, you know, were orphans, but they they put their lives together. And so it's so it's heartwarming to see that. And then they, they've kept their friendship. So you see, uh, I guess it was Paul and his wife going to visit Simon and his wife in Australia. And so that was... 
I thought a particularly touching moment to see. They look back on their lives and how they fathered a certain way and they didn't have fathers. And it's yeah. quite poignant. I mean, you wonder, I, they might have been friends anyway, but because of the movie, they bonded. But one yeah. thing that I, another question I had was, do all of these people get together every year for a reunion, for a banquet? <laughs> I mean, because they don't talk about ever reaching out to any of the other people. You know, you would think that that would be sort of a natural impulse. But this is know. their reunion, it sounds like. I guess so, every seven like years, in a, that's in it. a sense. Yeah. So when they when they were giving it uh, back to Apted a little bit, was that entertaining to see them sort of challenging a bit about his, his interviewing earlier? I found it entertaining. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but, but they were, I mean, it wasn't, some of it wasn't that good natured. I mean, oh really? I mean, they're they're uh, resentful. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Tony the cabbie um, said, you know, you you had me down as a certain kind of person when I was a kid, and and I turned out differently. Ha ha ha. I mean, that's sort of good natured. But but one of the women, you know, the one you know who said, you know, you you asked questions of us when we were teenagers that I you know thought were in effect demeaning. Uh, she was be, right. And and yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, well, I mean, I think in the context, did he have of, a good response to that? Uh, he doesn't put himself into the movie respond. a whole lot. No, okay. no, yeah. I th- which wisely. I mean, yeah, he just yeah. lets them. Right. Yeah, I mean, well, you, know, you don't want it to turn into a, a you know them versus <laughs> yeah. Michael. Uh, <laughs> Come at the end of the film and defend also, himself. Also, I, I mean, it was great that he included that. Made you, <laughs> but uh, right, you exactly. But you know, I mean, also he's. I mean, he's very dry. You know, he I mean, is. when he when he talks, it's you know, I mean, he he's an Oxbridge guy. Um, I thought obviously it was, and, pulled out of it, but. and I appreciated that he included that because he could have just left that out, right? Because um, yeah. he went back to her and he showed the the where he did actually ask those questions, and it was, you know, obviously it was a certain time, and and he didn't ask. He treated the women a little differently than he treated the men. Um, so yeah. I I think and I think he was maybe doing some thinking about that, and yeah. I appreciate that. And also, none of the none of the people are starstruck in any way by the fact that this guy directed you know Hollywood movies, Coal Miner's yeah, Daughter. Yeah, I mean it's like. They don't care. <laughs> they address him by name. They go, well, Michael, you know, da 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 da. Like right, they're, right. they're old yeah, buddies. Now they call yeah. him Michael. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I understand from our producer, Matt D'Angelo Antonio, that there's a clip where uh, the guy was in his own cab, talks about picking up Buzz Aldrin. Yeah. And they pull up to <laughs> right. a building. The doorman comes up and asks for an autograph. And, and Buzz, you know, thinks it's for Buzz, but it's for the other right. guy. Right. That was very funny. That movies. was the one yeah. example where, you know, they are celebrities. They are celebrities. Yeah. And they talk about Brexit a little bit too, which is interesting, you yeah. know, politically. It was, I thought it was great. 63 Up, it's the latest in the every seven year documentary series by Michael Apted that started when they were just kids of seven. Now they've turned 63. Michael Apted directing 63 Up, it's at the New Art Theater in West LA and it's unrated. The documentary Most Likely to Succeed is directed by Pamela Litke. Claudia? Well, it's interesting we're doing this one right after 63 Up because it's definitely in the same vein. Five Up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess it's 10 years maybe, ten years yeah. Um, but these are all, you know, uh, she follows seniors who were uh, voted most likely to succeed and follows them for a decade. Um, and these are four teens from fairly disparate backgrounds. I kind of wish she had followed a few more people because I feel like they weren't all that different. Um, some were, but um, she charts their courses. And, um, you know, a couple, one is from... Uh, kind of an upper class background here in California and others from Detroit. And, and um, what basically what struck me is that, you know, when you, when you confer that title, most likely to succeed, you're putting a lot of heavy weight and expectations onto people. And um, 
it seemed like all of them were kind of struggling. But I think 10 years is, you know, it's like going to your 10-year reunion. People haven't done much. So, you know, yeah, especially after seeing. No, point. they're not fully baked. No, so some of them look like they were leading interesting lives, but it's hard to tell. Some of them are uh, internet billionaires, too, for 10 years. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, no, so well, it, also, I think a lot of people like that tend to peak too early. And, you know, do you know remember anyone from your high school who... Got a title like that? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Glory days, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Most likely to succeed, the documentary's unrated. It's at the Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. Uh, The film Little Joe uh, stars Emily Beecham and Ben Wishaw. Jessica Hausner is the director. She co-wrote the film with Geraldine Bouillard. Claudia. This is a mixed bag. Um, it's it's an interesting premise, uh, the idea of a sinister plant. I mean, we've kind of seen it before, but it's it's as good an idea for a horror thriller as, as many others. Um, and it has an eccentric or a kind of an interesting style um, in the colors. It's It's got a very interesting sterile aesthetic with a very vivid color palette. So that was probably the thing that intrigued me the most about it. But it, it feels a little too muted to be really, truly frightening and creepy. Um, and you know, the storyline is about a single mother who's a plant breeder and she's at this soulless corporation as if there's any other kind and she's developing, um, new plant species. And then she engineers this flower that is very bright red and it's intended to, um, ultimately if you speak to it properly and you care for it properly to make your, the owner happy. So the premise is good. Um, it just doesn't quite live up to it. It's, it's so hypnotic in its storytelling style that it feels a little slow and clunky at times. But I think there's, it's it's a mixture. I mean, it's it, the performances sometimes feel zombie-like, and it feels a little muted. But the aesthetic is interesting. So I was disappointed, but not uninterested. I guess. All right. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. <laughs> little Joe, the film. It's at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A and unrated. Uh, The terrific uh, film Meet Me in St. Louis from 1944 is enjoying its 75th anniversary re-release in selected theaters for two days only. And Charles, let me start with you on this one. Um, Vincente Minnelli, the director, a fabulous cast uh, uh, led by Judy Garland. Yeah. Oh, this is just such a lovely movie. It's so much fun. It's beautiful. And I think Unfortunately, Judy Garland is now associated with people in her very angst-ridden, drug-ridden later days. And you tend to forget just how luminous she was on the screen. And she, she really certainly was, is yeah. here. It's just a lovely movie. And a trivia bit that one of the two boys fighting in the back of the wagon in the opening scene became UCLA's animation professor, Dan McLaughlin, whom I wow. studied with. But wow. I love this film. And I find it, uh, you know, I still, when it comes on, I'll watch it because I find it very dramatically involving, too. I, I have a very emotional connection to this film um, because my mother did dubbing in the movies and she dubbed the role of Judy Garland into oh, Spanish. Oh, wow. So, wow. yes. So yeah. throughout the Spanish-speaking world, it was your mom's well, voice. Throughout saying the... she has too much bloom. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, in Mexico. Oh, so, Mexico. Uh, okay. Yeah, not throughout the Spanish-speaking world because I have heard the Castilian version and it was not my mother. Right. But it, she was on contract with MGM back in the 30s or the 40s. 40s, actually. And um, so uh, this is a movie I watch with my daughters every year because my mom passed away 22 years ago. And, and it just keeps my mother alive. And it's also the main character's name is, is Esther. My mom's name is Esther. So it's a very it's a, I love this movie with a, a level of emotion <laughs> that is beyond. And I love the music and I love little Margaret O'Brien. I just 
Oh, I love yeah. this movie. It's to me, it's a perfect Christmas movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Peter. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's also it's not a movie that's all sweetness and light. It's there's a lot of emotional uh, depth to this film, a lot of serious stuff. Margaret O'Brien gives one of the very best child performances ever given it's in a, a movie. It's a great performance. Yeah. It really I mean, is. It's, yeah. it's a truly great performance. And, um, you know, and it has all these, you know, tr- the trolley song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And, you know, I'll, I, on a personal note of my own, there was a a good friend and colleague of mine who um, was in a nursing home in, in, in the end. And um, they showed this film uh, at his choice to the people who were there. And everybody just suddenly perked up and mm. and and just glowed and, understandably and, uh, i mean yeah. it was it just completely transformed them uh, from from where they were yeah i mean it's one of the yeah. prime examples of of popular art i mean mm. truly a yeah. great film meet me in st louis from 1944 it's getting a 75th anniversary re-release and selected theaters in southern california december 8th and december 11th only with fathom's uh, special screening series the film is unrated more to come on film week It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. We come your way every Friday at 11 and Saturday at noon here on 89.3 KPCC. Coming up in just a couple of minutes, we're going to talk about our favorite father-son depictions on film. We've done this in the past for mother-daughter movies, but we're going to take a look at father-sons. We've had quite a few of them recently, including the uh, uh, very well-reviewed film Honey Boy, which we'll hear a clip from a little bit. But first, I want to ask Charles about an encore presentation of a film that came out earlier this year, um, one of the films that has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, the documentary They Shall Not Grow Old. Charles? Oh, this is a very unusual movie. It's by Peter Jackson. He found amazing old footage of World War I and audio accounts of veterans recalling their days. But about 20 minutes into the movie, it suddenly colorized, and I'm not sure why, and about 20 minutes before it ends... He starts juxtaposing the color images with old illustrations and engravings of things about the war. But the footage is a tribute to what nitrate will do, that these images are crystalline, you know, 70-odd years later. And it's very, I guess, more than 100 years later, I'm sorry. Um, It's very compelling to hear these men talk about what they went through and the horrors of World War I that was we were going to be home by Christmas and then it was just the slaughter of a whole generation of young men in Europe, including England. So very interesting, very moving film. They Shall Not Grow Old from director Peter Jackson, the documentary. It'll be one night only screening another Fathom Events film December 7th. The film was theatrically released uh, February 1st of this year. But again, these are one of the nine films with a perfect Rotten Tomato score of 100% that are getting one night only screenings. They Shall Not Grow Old is rated R uh, because of the violent content. Well, as I mentioned, we turn our attention now to father-son relationships on film. Randy Dawn writing in the Los Angeles Times about how, how many films of this year, Waves, Ad Astra, Rocket Man, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, uh, all had themes involving 
father-son relationship. And let's hear an example from another one of those movies. Uh, Shia LaBeouf uh, wrote Honey Boy, um, which he also co-stars. He plays his own father in that film uh, as the uh, character uh, that's depicting LaBeouf struggles navigating childhood acting and reconciling with his father. In this scene, James Lord as LaBeouf interrupts a scene his son Otis is shooting. You know, I could probably kick your butt. You know, I'm the funny one around here. You stand up, I'm gonna kick your butt right now. Oh, you got about? You got about? Ready? Quiet! I don't yeah. Whose fault is that? I don't care. I'll be the bad guy. I don't give a That's done. That's it. That's it. Come here. Good take. Good take. You did it. You did it. Good job, everybody. Let's go. Come here. That's it. No, it's gonna take another 20 minutes to get the boy out the costume. We banked three hours of school today, Kev. You said it was over 10 minutes ago. It's been 30 minutes. Get the man another watch. Hey, Dad, Dad I was. Come here. I was getting the scene. Yeah, I don't care. Okay? I don't care. Come here. Come here. Come here. Child Rose! Uh, one of the films depicting uh, father-son relationships, obviously a fraught one in Honey Boy. Randy Dawn, who writes for the Los Angeles Times Envelope, award section of the paper. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So uh, share with us a little bit about um, the themes this year. And This is an example of sort of rough going relationship. Are, are there any that have, um, you know, uh, warm hearted depictions of that relationship? Well, I think the the story that I ended up writing did focus on the more dysfunctional ones because we were seeing sort of a trend of that. Uh, it's it's not unfamiliar to have uh, father son relationships in general going on in the movies, but we noticed in the awards season that there were a bunch of them that were more dysfunctional or exploring new ways to parent. I think that if you looked at something like Marriage Story, you would find uh, that although there is a crumbling marriage, you have a father who's motivated to fight for his son, uh, and that sort of is what propelled him to, uh, you know, get a lawyer, really put up a battle to make sure he gets to be a father in this instance. So that's one case. Oh, I'd love to hear from our Film Week listeners if you have a favorite depiction of a father-son relationship, either because just dramatically it worked. It was a great depiction of, of a fraying or all-out uh, hostile relationship or a particularly affectionate one. We're at 866-893-KPCC. This is for those listening live on Friday to Film Week, 866-893-5722. But you can make your contribution uh, with your favorite father-son relationship depicted on screen on our Film Week page at kpcc.org with your favorite. Well, let me talk with our critics. Claudia, let me start with you. Do you have a a couple of favorites? I do. um, One of them is Beginners, uh, a film that came out a few years ago directed by Mike Mills. It's based on the director's own experience. And um, it's a film in which, after his wife's death, this father, played by Christopher Plummer, comes out as gay to his son, Ewan McGregor. And um, because of his newfound honesty, the father and son grow closer. And it's such a beautiful film. I yeah. love this I movie. I like that movie Yeah, yeah. And Plummer gives a terrific performance. Yes. Peter? Uh, the Godfather. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I mean, yeah. It's, yeah. You know, I mean that that's that's a, a, a major examination of of father son dynamics. Uh, you know, in a very large context. Uh, I mean, and the Bicycle Thieves, uh, De Sica's movie about the father, and he takes his young son along mm-hmm. to find the bicycle. That is one of the most powerful father son uh, depictions on on film. Um, 
Sounder is another oh, one. Oh, yes. You know, there's Sicily that incredible Tony scene Sanders. where the father says to this boy, you know, he says, don't, don't you ever think that I don't love you? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great, great piece of work. Lonnie Elder wrote it, and it's just an amazing, uh, amazing movie and amazing relationship. Charles, your your favorites? A uh, couple. Uh, Hiccup and Stoic the Vast in the How to Train Your Dragons yeah. movies. Um, Up, where Russell and Carl Fredrickson find the father and the son they need in a very moving way. And the uh, Japanese film Boy and the Beast, where once again two characters who need each other find each other and enter a, a, a very interesting mentor relationship. It's not a touchy-feely Daniel and Mr. Miyagi. They yell and they argue and fight, and they both grow. And it's um, a really, really nice film. In live action, I think of uh, Ordinary People. Mm-hmm. And in animation, I also think of uh, Coco and Finding Nemo. Yes. And also uh, Moonlight. It, it was not. It was a fatherly relationship that Mahershala Ali had with um, with a young boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a very, a very moving one. Very much so, yeah. All right, again, we're at 866-893-KPCC. If you're listening Friday to our live film week, it's a chance for you to share your favorites. Uh, Andrew in Long Beach, A Bronx Tale. There are two fathers in that film. Uh, Mike in Encino wants to contribute in the name of the father about the troubles mm-hmm. in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, another one, 866-893-KPCC. KPECC. Let me go back to Randy Dawn, writer for the Los Angeles Times Envelope uh, supplement to the paper. Uh, Randy, what were some of the other films this year that had uh, particularly dramatically compelling father-son stories? Well, I, I think we looked at, the, the, for the article, we looked at, for example, uh, there's Rocket Man, which goes to Elton John's success story. And the, the motivating factor for him was that, you know, he wanted to be who he was, but he had a very disapproving father. So that was one of them. You mentioned Honey Boy. Uh, believe it or not, uh, there's a father-son dynamic that, that really underscores a beautiful day in the neighborhood because you have, uh, that's the Fred Rogers film. Uh, and he's, of course, the ultimate good dad. But um, the reporter who comes to interview him has just uh, basically thrown a punch at his own father. So he has some serious father son issues. And we we've talked to Matthew Reese, who plays that uh, that journalist in the film. And Matthew Reese also had some interesting things to say about that uh, and how he learned from Fred while making the film about how to interact with his own toddler. Um, and then uh, there's also Waves, which is a, a slightly smaller film but deals with a father who is a little too strict, maybe with his son, but then uh, with his daughter tries to repair and be a better father. All right, we'll continue with our critics and Randy Dawn, Los Angeles Times envelope writer, 866-893-KPCC, Friday Live Film Week listeners. Share with us, please, your favorite father-son relationships depicted on screen. Uh, For Flip Mama, The Rookie with Dennis Quaid and Brian Cox. We'll be back in one minute on Film Week. It's Film Week on KPCC. We're talking about the most compelling father-son relationships. Good, bad, violent, 
Uh, heartwarming 866-893-KPCC if you're listening live Friday to Film Week. I'm joined by critics Charles Solomon, Peter Rayner, and Claudia Puig, and also with us, uh, Los Angeles Times envelope writer Randy Dawn, who just wrote a piece, Father-Son Relationships, play out in many movies this season, but rarely pleasantly. Uh, John in Mid-City, also referencing Moonlight and Call Me By Your Name. Both have a very sweet father-son relationship. Uh, both have a sweet take on a gay child and a supportive father. Barbara and La Puente says The Yearling, the classic film with Gregory Peck, yeah, and of course a classic book uh, that was adapted to film as well. Uh, Lisa and Santa Monica, Kramer versus Kramer, the ultimate father-son relationship on film. A father fighting for custody of his son, something we rarely see on screen. Claudia. I was just remembering The Place Beyond the Pines. Do you remember that movie with Ryan Gosling and Bradley Cooper, Dane DeHaan? It was a really good film by Derek Cianfrance, who did um, Blue Valentine also. And it's an examination of fathers and sons and sort of, you know, all the conflicts that can happen. And it was it was quite dark, but really, really interesting. We. Uh, Peter? We're getting very touchy-feely here, but how about some <laughs> negative... Well, you brought up the father. I mean, uh, I Never Sank for My Father is, is a terrific oh, movie. Yes. Gene Hackman and Melvin, Melvin Douglas. Douglas. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Or the, the collected works of James Dean, you know, Rebel Without a Clause, <laughs> East of Eden, you know, you did yes. this to me. A <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, giant was there. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> yeah. I don't remember one there. No, no. but And let, let's not forget Stepfathers either, you know, the... The stepfather uh, and Night oh, yes. of the Hunt, Night of the Hunter, <laughs> my favorite the Night of the Hunter. You know, there's there's a father for you. Well, and in Boyhood, not only just the father, but the stepfather too. That was also right. Terrifying. But Boys in the Hood is very good, I think. For, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, if, we're, if we're going to push fathers out onto a limb, what about Mrs. Doubtfire? Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's pushing the envelope. <laughs> Philip in Alhambra, uh, what for you stands out? Father-son depictions on screen. To me, I'll always be haunted by the squid and the whale. Oh, uh, Jeff yes. Daniels' uh, pretentious monster of a father. And that it was so, my father was a psychiatrist and he was so much like that character. I felt I felt spied on in a very uncomfortable way. And I almost wish I could unsee that movie. Yeah, I was going to say, it must have been tough for you to watch that then if it had that much, uh, you know, that close to your life. Absolutely. But that movie's uncomfortable for anyone with a heart and a brain to watch, but it's, yeah, that's, that's a, I love that movie, but, um, and my father isn't around anymore. So not like I watched that so I could remember him fondly, but <laughs> it's a great movie. And it's, it's so, it's so true that it, I felt like part of it had to be lived through of, of Noah Baumbach's writing in that movie. Philip, I appreciate it. Thanks very much. It yeah, was Claire. based on his parents, apparently. Yeah. I love that film, but also Big Fish. I was thinking about another oh, bombastic yes. father. Yeah. Film. Yes. Albert Finney yes. is the dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the way, I know Noah Baumbach's parents were both film critics. <laughs> Jonathan was a, what was a novelist. What does that explain? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, they were both film critics. Oh, so. they drove him to make Go good figure. movies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The other uh, listener, Surfcraft Shane, of of course, uh, classic, classic film. Uh, Cheeky T, The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith, and also echoing, I think you said, Claudia, Finding Nemo uh, as well. Uh, David says, Field of Dreams. Uh, and Back to the Future, so a couple of 80s films there. We're talking about the most powerful, uh, best depictions of father-son relationships on screen. Luis in Reseda, uh, which film do you want to highlight? 
Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah, <laughs> Indiana's dad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because there's this great interplay, you know, between the two of them in the entire movie. And, you know, uh, Indiana Sr. calls Indiana Jr. the entire time, except at the end when, you know, Indiana Jr. tries to escape the Holy Grail. Indiana Sr., you know, in an attempt to save his life, calls him Indiana for the only time in the movie. So I think that's really a powerful kind of moment. Louisa, I appreciate it very much. Another film that, oh yeah, Claudia, I just thought of one, Nebraska. Oh yes, yeah. 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 Alexander Payne's film. Yes, that was a really interesting film. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's, uh, I mean, again, it's Stepfather, but Charlie Chaplin's The Kid is an incredible bond between them. Great film. That's that's like, um, I think, uh, Up, where the, the son and the father find the match they didn't know they needed. Yeah. yeah. Jonathan in Silver Lake wants to highlight Warrior with Tom Hardy and Nick Nolte, the dynamic between alcoholic father, how they connect in a hotel room, a very powerful scene. Uh, A River Runs Through It. Uh, Matt, our producer, mentioning that. Robert Redford directing that film. Craig Sheffer, Brad Pitt uh, starring in that film. So many uh, terrific uh, father-son films. Ben, you have one I would have never thought of. Uh, ben in Palm Springs, real quickly, your your film? You know, one of the best father-son films I've ever seen was a goofy movie. Gorsh! A- <laughs> <laughs> Goofy is trying to take his son Max fishing, and Max wants to go to a concert in Los Angeles. And it is heartwarming and touching and really funny and a fabulous movie for father and son. All right, Ben, a goofy movie. I I love it. All right. Uh, We have time for a last call. Charles, one more you want to add? Um, No, but Goofy sort of became Disney's everyman after the 50s, so it's kind of appropriate that... He would be uh, an involved, caring father. Claudia? Ooh, last one. Um, I, I'm going back to boyhood because I feel like that was a continuing father-son Yeah, so uh, true. Evolution. Uh, HUD. Uh, I'm not oh, a fan HUD. Of, oh, yes. HUD is great. I'm not a fan of Life is Beautiful, but that probably should I be I was mentioned. thinking that, too. We had a listener and who brought that San, up. The great yeah. Santini. Uh, oh, yeah. All right. And Karen in Silver Lake, a French movie called My Father's Glory, thought it was one of the most tender and beautiful films about a boy starting to see his dad as a human being. There's an Italian one called The Sun's Room. That's really amazing. Hey, thank you all so much. And Randy Dawn of LA Times, The Envelope, uh, she writes for that and wrote the story that started our conversation on father-son relationships. For all of us at Film Week, have a wonderful rest of your weekend.